Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osman, here with my friend in Chavruta Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masachet Chagiga, daf Yotet, page 19. Well, I'm going to start in the bottom of the previous staff, uh, but before we get to that, I just want to announce again that we released our registration information for upcoming SIEM on Seder Moed, which is really exciting. It means we've all been at it for about a little over two years. Uh, we'd love to hear from some of our learners about what learning has meant to you over these past few years. Uh, so please look out for the links on our Facebook page. Uh, we've also emailed them to people who have previously attended and also on our WhatsApp group. And if you're not sure how to contact us, uh, you can uh, you can find us on Facebook. Um, so or you can email uh, you can actually uh, email even on Anchor. Even yeah, on even Anchor, Anchor, you can send us a message. That's true. So uh, we're looking. I just want to add, and I just want to add that you know some people have spoken before. Maybe they feel that they shouldn't speak yet. They shouldn't speak again. And people haven't spoken, and they feel that they aren't ready to. We want to hear from all of you, whether you've spoken already or you haven't. Now is a good time. For, for any and all of you who would like to speak, we're coming to the end of Seder Moed. It's a, we think it's a big deal. Yes, we do. It is. It's exciting. And then wait till we get to Yavomas, which we'll another time soon. Um, okay. So um, anyhow, so I'm going to start actually on the bottom of Yudchet um, and um, with an interesting uh, brysa. And there's two issues that I want to talk about here. The concept of needing kavana for or intention when somebody goes to the mikvah, when they immerse, and Anne, I know you talked about this a little bit, and there's really a great boundary testing case here. And we haven't had one of those in a while. A case that just seems so there um, that I don't think it's really real, but it's more, how could they concoct, you know, the, the most outer limit of a possible halakhic scenario? So, so, so the sages talk, one who washes his hands, if he did it with the intent to basically make his hands tahor, his hands are tahor. But if he did not intend to, his hands are, his hands are considered impure. Um, uh, also in a case where somebody who immerses his in 40 seahs of water, like into a mikvah, if he intended to purify his hands, they're pure. And if he did not, his, ten, his, ten, his hands are impure. Vahatanya. Um, and so now the Gemara is basically going to sort of raise a difficulty with this. And they bring another Brisa, right? Which teaches, right? Whether somebody had intention or didn't have intention, um, you know, his hands are going to be, uh, th- his hands are considered to be tachot. Amarav Nachman lo kasha. So Rav Nachman says, wait, we don't have a kasha here. Yes, we have these two brises. The first brisa, which I just read, which seems to say you have to have kavana uh, when you either wash your hands or immerse your hands in a, a mikvah, um, that you have to have kavana that you wanted the hands to be tahor if you want them to be tahor. And the second brisa says you don't need to have <coughs> kavana. And so Rav Nachman says, second brisa is talking about hulin. Right where you wouldn't need to have kavana, master. But the first price that we read that said you do have to have kavana is talking about uh, is talking about maser, and there you do have to have kavana. Umant lo ba'u kavana. Okay, and so then the Gemara asks, how do we know or how do we say that uh, non that non sacred food that chulin doesn't require uh, kavana? And now they're going to quote a Mishnah from Mikvaos, okay, which is a seder in Taros. Uh, from uh, chapter five, verse six, it's not. Gal lash ubo And so this is the totally whimsical case. If a wave has forty seah of water, 
And it falls on a person and all the kalim that are with it. So in other words, you're standing at the beach, you're at the shore, and basically a huge wave comes that had 40 seahs, and it falls on you and all your kalim, you're automatically tachot. Katani adam dumia de kalim, ma kalim, delo mikavane, adam delo mikavane. So this Mishnah basically teaches us that a person is like Caleb, just as vessels can't have kavana to, right? Because they obviously, their vessel, their Caleb, they don't have any intention. So too, a person, right, also doesn't have to have any type of intention. There doesn't need to be any kavana, okay? So very interesting discussion about the concept of kavana when it comes to uh, dunking, right? Because I think what's different about here is when we talk about becoming tahor, right? We talk about like having kavana when you reach ma or having kavana when you eat matzah. But here, like, do you have to have kavana? Is it just the act of the water touching you in the way that's correct? Or do we say like you have to have kavana that that water, that process is actually doing something? And that's really what the discussion is. And I think that's why the discussion about kavana comes up in all different cases, because what the Gemara and the Mishnahs want to entertain is, is that maybe it's not true for every scenario that we have scenarios, halakhic obligations that really require intention and other ones that don't. And then I think obviously also this whole case of a, you know, this idea that you sort of would just randomly be standing somewhere and this 40 say a wave would come on you, right? It, you know, seems really, you know, sort of almost like uh, a close to impossible. So the Gemara goes on, it says, So if you would say that the Mishnah is referring to somebody who was sitting and waiting, What's the purpose of, state, of stating this? In other words, the, this halacha, you know, wh- why do you have to say this? That this that this person was sort of like sitting around and waiting. So it says, it's giving us, it, it's teaching us an insight here. Because it might enter your mind to say, right, that it would be decreed. Let's say somebody comes to immerse himself in a flow of rainwater. In other words, let's say you have rainwater and the volume actually equals 40. So you might think that, um, that if you immerse in that flood of rainwater, right, it would affect, you know, it would allow you to be tahor. But the halacha is, is that rainwater only purifies if it's actually in one, sort of in one location. Right? Or you might think that it should be decreed that the being tahor occurs by the edges right, that come in contact with the ground, right, um, and it should be, and, and it's ineffective because of that sort of like upper arch of the wave. So the Mitches teaches us that we don't, we don't make such a decree, that actually the wave could make you actually tahor. And then from where do you say that you can, you can't actually immerse in the arc itself? Where do we learn that? So what we're talking about here is that if the wave were to come, it would have to fall on you, it's the flow but if you were somehow suspended midair and like that arc of the wave, or you were like a very tall person, I guess, and you somehow hit the arc of the wave, that actually would not allow you to be tahor. Ditanya, and so we have another brisa. Matbilin barishon be'ematbilin bekifin. Right? You can immerse in the edges of the wave, but you can't immerse in the arc. Right? Be'ematbilin ba'avir. And why can't you immerse in the arcs? Because you can't immerse in the air, right? That that area under the wave is considered to be midair, just not how a person is allowed to uh, immerse, okay? So the Gemara then is going to go on from here uh, to give a, a different proof from a, a, a different Mishnah 
uh, to try to show that when we talk about tahara, when we come, when it comes to purifying oneself, that even uh, hulin uh, doesn't require intention. But I, I just found this whole argument, you know, first of all, the discussion about uh, immersion or, or trying to become tahara requiring intention is very interesting because it does feel different to me than, you know, saying you're saying shema or eating matzah, right? Like there, it's just like, why, you know, what does your kavana have to be? And the Gemara is going to go into that later, right? It's going to talk about later on that, let's say you went into a mikvah and you wanted to change your kavana, right? Like you had kavana just for hulin, but then you decided, oh, I really want to count matzer. How could you actually change it? Okay. Um, but it's interesting to see sort of that the case they use for this is this one of the wave, which clearly would just never happen. But, you know, this is one of a, the great examples that we've been talking all throughout our learning of Dafyomi, where we sort of see they want to push the boundary of halakha and just see, like, what's the most fantastical case they could come up with, which teaches us something about the halakha, but we know would never actually happen. I see your wave and I raise you one. I think that the next, like, the next logical conclusion here would be, for example, that you cannot tovel in a cloud, in a rain cloud. Meaning, if you were on a mountain that was high enough to hit the rain clouds, or if you were in an airplane, let's say, or I don't know what, a glider where you could actually be outside and get wet, the answer would be that that does not count as tevila. Yes, I would agree with Right, because you're up in the air, right? right? So, meaning, obviously, I understand why the Gemara does not go that far, right? Because besides being even more far-flung than a wave, um, also, I don't think that there was... You know, the heights were not really part of their reality in that way to go that high up into the sky. Um, I do think that the the point about, you know, if you're waiting on the beach with the Kalim and just to see if the wave is going to fall on top of you. I think also part of that is like a now you're showing intent. And I'm thinking, but who would think that that would be an effective means of tefillah to begin with? Because, as you've just said, this is a, a boundary pusher. Um in that way. And I do think it helps us define the parameters of what does it mean to Tovel with intent or without intent. Um, and I think that that becomes not just, you know, hypothetically important, but critically important. One of the, there's a very famous chuva of Rav Moshe Feinstein Zetzel, who was a, for those who don't know, he was a very well-renowned world posek, really, of halacha for, he died in 1985, I think, maybe 1986. Um, and his and his psak was that it, the question was, you know, what happens if you have a balchuva, right, whose mother has not gone to the mikvah, right, because the parents, let's say, were not religious. And this famous, famous psak says, well, she clearly, you know, went swimming or something, right, meaning which the 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 import of that shaila. Uh, and the of the answer is don't don't worry too much about this, right? Don't go investigating what you don't need. This is not your worry. But the but the content of it is there must have been de facto tvila that would ensure that this baby was who grew up to be a Balchuva was born Batahara. And the point then being, right, that you don't need intent, that the mother didn't need intent if she went swimming in a in a rain pool, you know, a pond that's filled with rainwater, something like that. Oh, 40 sa'a, exactly, right? Meaning it's it's a much bigger discussion for another time or, or even not, right? Like, But the idea that tefillah doesn't need intent has real implications for, for even nowadays when we're not talking about eating issues, right? As far as that goes. Um, 
Okay, I want to go on, and which is actually going to take us back to some of the discussion from the Mishnah. Meaning, if you indeed dunk for the purpose of eating chulin, regular food that has no level of kedusha, right, and then you are in fact, you know, considered to be tahor, whatever, for the ritual purity for the level of the non-sacred food. Now. One important distinction here is just to note, because we didn't, I don't know if we really talked about it enough. Um, the fact that Truma, Truma and Maestro, right, they're not considered Kodesh in the way that Karbanot are, but they're also not considered nothing the way Hulin is, right? In the same way as just being regular food that you don't really need to be pure to eat, right? So then the point here is that, and we're going to see, you know, we're going to see this. Um, it's on the daf here. It's a little bit further up, and it comes in rele- relevant to the bit I'm about to talk about. Um, is this idea that the rabbis, the sages, decided that there should be like a at this intermediate level of tahara, right, which is not the same thing as kodesh as korban, right, for those who are eating trumat maestro, so that they, you know, the question of do you need to wash your hands to touch the tithes, the answer is well that seems not to be the case. But to partake of the tithes, meaning if you're going to eat, then perhaps you really do. And again, this seems to be like a rabbinic level of Tara that is, um, we encounter it really first here. Okay. So the Gemara then wants to know, Mani Manin, whose psak is being represented in the Mishnah that is talking about one who is dunking for the purpose of Hulin is then considered, again, considered pure for that, but and the whole hierarchy that we discussed the other day. And the answer is Rabbanan he, according to the Gemara. Rabbanan is the the rabbis, meaning the group rabbis, Deshani Lahu Ben Chulin Lamaser. Because they, meaning again, they made this decree or the or or policy of differentiating between Chulin and Truma and, and Maser, rather. Right? Meaning the idea is again that if you if you are required to dunk for the sake of touching the food, right? Meaning, touching the food is, if you are impure, if you have dunked and you touch the food, you're not going to make anything impure, right? But if you come in contact with Truman Maxroat, then they would be considered impure if you were impure. Meaning, let's take another step back. There's a whole level of, you you carry about your, your daily business even if you're impure. Right? In a, if you're living in a time of Tumantara, you didn't have to, like, sit in jail while you were Tame, right? You just couldn't, you had to be careful what you came in contact with. So to come in contact with Hulin doesn't make it impure, right? It, it, it makes it impure. It doesn't matter, right? It's irrelevant. But the problem of making truma and maser impure means that then they cannot be eaten. And that becomes the complicated thing. Okay. And then the emasefa. But what about the end of the Mishnah, right? The end of the Mishnah is talking about the beget, right? The clothing. Big day midras right? That we're talking about somebody who's where the walking is like that of a zav, right? Somebody who's considered a rishon, the rishon tuma meaning it's a primary source of tuma. Um, and then, so what can you do, right? Meaning, what are you supposed to do if you're if you've come in contact with the baggage? So the gemara here says big day prushin midras truma. So the garments of prushin, right? They are the people who themselves are very careful to remain ritually pure. Those clothes, those clothes of their the, that the, that these prushin are wearing, are still considered impure for the sake of truma, 
Meaning you got to be a little more careful when it comes to truma and you can't treat just because the person is careful. You can't assume that their garments are as well. And therefore that would be a difference from the point of the, about the beginning of the Mishnah that we've just said that it's the rabbis, right? Because the rabbis would say that it doesn't, when you're talking about cool and you're fine, you're talking about truma and maestro, you know, the touch, you have to be so her, but somebody who is careful about not coming in contact with something that is tummy should be considered tohor, but the begged like adds this wrinkle that takes it away from the rabbi's psa. So the Gemara concludes, Ataad Rebbe Meir. We have come to the position of Rebbe Meir. The Amar, what was Rebbe Meir's position? Chulin Vemaser Nidhu. When we're talking about um Chulin, right? Meaning the things that are not holy, and also Truma. I'm sorry, I keep saying Truma, I mean Maser. Right, it's true about a maestro, but the Gemara specifically is talking about Maser, right? So, the, according to Rabbi Mayer, those two things, they are similar, meaning the Mishnah didn't really separate between them in terms of the policy of what you need to do. Reisha Rabbanan, the safer Rabbi Mayer. So, are we saying then that the beginning was Rabbanan and the end is Rabbi Mayer? In the Gemara says, yes, Reisha Rabbanan, the safer Rabbi Mayer. So, the reason that we care about this is because throughout Shas, and we've seen this. The Dapim have talked about this much more than we, your data, than you and I have talked about it, is, you know, the discussion of whose opinion is represented in the Mishnah becomes very important when you're talking about rabbinic authority overall, right? Many, many Mishnayot are anonymous. And the general assumption is that that's following the position of Rabbi Meir, who is following the teachings of Rabbi Akiva. And that's like a, a good policy. But at some level, when you track things back in this way to say, well, who said what? Um, because especially if something seems to be contradictory, then the authority, you know, you need to pay attention to whose authority is for to be able to kick in and say, aha, that's that's who we're relying upon, you know, to for our given psa. Um, uh, okay, and then just finally here, Rav Akbar Ada, Matnila Besefa, Chamesh Malot, Umukila Kuleb Karabaran. But Rabbi. Rav Akhbar Adad does not think it's Rabbi Meir. What does he say? There are five levels of the, I'm sorry, the five levels of the Tumatara that are listed in the end of the Mishnah, right, about the different levels of the of the clothing and who can eat what, you know, depending on what their clothing is. He says, well, this whole thing can then be understood to be in, al- in alignment with the opinions of the rabbis. Because if we say that the clothes of those who can eat, chulin, right, even if they themselves the clothing, let me say this carefully, the clothes of those who eat chulin, who themselves are in a state of tara, the clothes are impure for the sake of of miser, right? Then we come back to the opinion of Rabbanan. Meaning, Rabbanan said that we depend on the, we depend on the person so that the person's clothing might be not okay for Truman Meiser, but the person himself is that that aligns with Rabbanan's position that you would still have to be more careful when it comes to Maser than you would, even, even if you yourself are general careful, you have to be more careful when it comes for Maser. Um, I do, again, find this to be a little bit of a, of a jumble because of the fact of, of we can set up the hierarchy. We could, I can make you a chart with colors and everything like that, you know, and you would see how one level is, you know, more stringent than the next. But the question of where the stringency kicks in and where it doesn't, and again, the differences between the garments and the person wearing the garments, um, I think is still still foreign to us as much as we keep encountering it in these pages.
Yeah, look, this whole daf has really taken us in a different direction. I think we've all been enjoying sort of the end of Moe Katan and Chagiga. And, you know, now we're really getting back into like the the deep of uh, Tuma and Tower again. Well, that's our DAF discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Barber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAF in our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.